Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. Historian Colin Richmond describes the personal monarchy of the Playboy King. Heavy eating, heavy drinking, and heavy whoring. The man who would become the senior claimant of the House of York for the Crown of England in the Wars of the Roses was known to be genial even to the common man, remembering the names of all his associates. He represented everything Henry VI didn't. He offered courage, leadership, and political intelligence. But his promiscuous lifestyle and the overestimation of the power of his charm meant he was exposed to the sinister 15th century culture of deceit and treachery. This is Edward IV. Edward was born on the 28th of April, 1442, in Rouen, Normandy. Both of his parents were descendants of Edward III. His father, the Duke of York, and mother, Cecilie Neville. When Edward was born, his father was on duty as Lieutenant of France for the English during the Hundred Years' War. Edward grew up amidst a background of economic decline in England and military defeat abroad. The government was corrupt and weak, with the young, coddled King Henry VI delegating duties to the men who raised him. Edward's father, as a descendant of Edward III, and the king's uncle, was effectively heir. He was a threat, and kept out of the way. He was dismissed from his position in France, and was sent to Ireland in 1449. The young Edward grew up fast. As an adult, he was six foot four. He would be the tallest monarch in British history. Philip de Comines said, He was the handsomest prince my eyes ever beheld. He was also very clean for the time, bathing every Saturday night. He was very aware of his attractiveness. He wore magnificent and daringly cut clothes, revealing his well-proportioned physique. As a handsome, affable and energetic figure, he was the antithesis of the king. In France, the Hundred Years' War ended in disastrous defeat for the English. York, who had watched the men who had replaced him fail miserably, took up arms. England, a country that had finally tasted total defeat abroad, were now set to be embroiled in a chaotic, brutal, dynastic struggle on their own shores. Edward's father, the Duke of York, would lead his house in overthrowing the House of Lancaster and claim the crown. The Yorkists had initial success. In 1460, York was able to physically lay his hand on the throne, the throne on which he now claimed as his own. But opinion at court was against him and another traumatic usurpation after Henry IV in 1399. He would have to settle for being made heir, the compliant, weak-willed Henry had just disinherited his own infant son. But the Queen, Margaret, had other ideas. She defeated York at the Battle of Wakefield. York was killed in the process. It meant that at the age of 17, Edward would now lead the Yorkist cause. At the Battle of Mortimer's Cross in February 1461, Edward led his troops into battle for the first time. 
just before the arrows were loosed, the illusion of three suns appeared in the clear sky. We now know this was an optical phenomenon called a parhelion. His troops were perturbed by this omen. Edward settled his men by accrediting the phenomenon to the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. And therefore, let us have a good heart and in the name of the Almighty God, go against our enemies. The soldiers were roused and inspired to a great victory over the Lancastrian allies, the Tudors. This was the first example of Edward's effective leadership. It would serve him well. He later adopted the three sons on his personal badge. Edward, fresh from victory, marched on London. He was in luck. The Lancastrians had been barred from the capital. The Londoners were loyal to the House of York. On the 4th of March, 1461, Edward was crowned Edward IV. He was just 18 years old, but looked every bit a king. He had seized the opportunity with courage and aplomb. Now there were two kings at large. The Lancastrians were anything but defeated. Although King Henry was a pliant and feeble man, his wife, Queen Margaret, had true leadership qualities and fortitude. In what was a war of attrition, the Battle of Towton would be its climax. It was fought in a blizzard. The winds were blowing in the faces of the Lancastrians. It meant that while their arrows failed to reach their mark, they were being pummeled by the Yorkists, who were aided by the same wind. Plan B for the Lancastrians was brutal, savage, hand-to-hand combat. But the Lancastrians had lost too many men and retreated. Edward ordered his men to give chase. The Yorkists butchered their enemies up to six miles from the battlefield. They had even used the corpses of their enemies as a bridge to cross a river and continue the pursuit. It was one of the most brutal battles in English history. Tens of thousands of men died. In relation to the number of troops present, it was more deadly than the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Margaret, Henry and their young son Edward went into a long exile. With his enemies dispersed and broken, Edward IV would now be able to rule his kingdom. By 1465, in fact, Edward had managed to secure the capture of Henry VI. He was placed in the Tower of London. There he would stay. The king now had the job of convincing the nation and those close to him that he was a capable ruler. Because of his towering presence, appearance, and his reputation as a true warrior in battle, he was able to quickly restore royal authority. But there was another man who eyed power. The Earl of Warwick had been instrumental in bringing victory to the Yorkists, especially after the death of Edward's father, the Duke of York. Warwick expected to rule. At 31, he was 13 years older than the teenage king, and would have been confident in his ability to control him and personally shape government policy. Warwick was also incredibly powerful in his own right. 
as England's richest landowner, Father King. He was part of the prestigious Neville family. The Chancellor and the Archbishop of York were both his brothers. A Frenchman described the situation in the early years to the French king, Louis XI. They have but two rulers, Warwick and another, whose name I've forgotten. What chance did an 18-year-old king have in inserting his authority against such an overbearing force? At first, he would have struggled, but it would not be long before Warwick realised that this was no puppet king. He would have to dance to Edward's tunes soon enough. Warwick was very keen to marry Edward off. Marriage to a foreign princess was a potentially shrewd and lucrative diplomatic tool. Warwick wanted Edward to marry Anne, the daughter of Louis XI of France, in an effort to bring bitter enemies together in peace as part of a greater treaty. Edward dithered. Warwick was insistent. There was something holding Edward back. At the Council of Reading in 1464, Edward revealed a startling secret. He was already married. He had eloped four months earlier, and had kept it even from his closest advisers, because this was as far away from a shrewd, lucrative, diplomatic marriage as could be possible. Edward, from a young age, was very promiscuous. He used his dashing good looks and oozing charm to his advantage. He would sail along the Thames in a gilded barge to the sound of music, where he would flirt with the ladies of the court. <laughs> Philip de Comines said he thought of nothing else but women, far more than is reasonable. According to Thomas More, no woman was there anywhere that he set his eyes upon, but without fear of God, he would importunately pursue his appetite and have her. Licentious to the extreme, his pursuit was without discrimination, the married, the unmarried, the noble and lowly, by promises and money. Once conquered, he would dismiss them. For the purpose of securing a judicious marriage, Warwick should have kept a closer eye on the young king. While hunting one day, a young, beautiful woman ambushed the king from behind an oak tree. She complained that she had been disinherited after her husband had died fighting for the Lancastrians at the Battle of St. Albans. Edward was charmed, and he made his move. The woman brandished a knife and pushed it up against the king's neck. My liege, I know I'm not good enough to be your queen, but I'm far too good to be your mistress. The lustful, impulsive Edward offered the young stranger her hand in marriage. This stranger was called Elizabeth Woodville. Her mother was of high nobility, but crucially her father was a mere middle-ranking knight. When the council found out, she was equated to little more than a commoner. But there was more to cause outrage at the Council of Reading. Woodville was by no means a virgin, as was standard for queens. She was a widow. Her husband had fought alongside their bitter enemies. She also came from a large family. She had 12 living siblings that would now be owed offices and estates from their king and queen, creating a large pool of competitors. Included in those 12 were a large number of single women of marriage age. They would go straight to the top of a list of bachelorette, yet they brought nothing themselves to the table in money or land, making them huge obstacles to any young noble 
looking for a lucrative marriage. The council openly argued against the marriage, criticising the king. You should know well that she is no queen for a king such as yourself. But it was too late. They were married. Elizabeth Woodville was the first English queen since 1066. But Edward would face the heat. He probably had too much faith in his own charm in retaining allies. Now he had to satisfy a large family. Far from being grateful for their unprecedented rise, they were ambitious and greedy and queued up for rewards, providing Edward's enemies with ammunition. The sisters of a queen began to marry earls and dukes, but it was Queen Elizabeth's brother who perhaps caused the biggest controversy. John, at just 20 years old, married the widowed Duchess of Norfolk, who was 65. This was described as a diabolical marriage. It was widely denounced as a shocking example of Woodville greed. The family was now being given the timeless derogatory tag of evil counsellors. Warwick was seething. His complex negotiations with France for a peace treaty had been dashed by the horny king. He had to inform France that the marriage to Louis's daughter was off, because even though Warwick was a high admiral of England, he had no idea that the king was actually already married. It was extremely embarrassing. In his quest for power and control, he had been deeply humbled. The introduction of the Woodvilles had hugely dented Warwick's power and influence, and not just him. His brother, the Chancellor, was replaced by Elizabeth's own father, Richard Woodville. The new family was a serious political threat. When Edward agreed to marry his sister to the Duke of Burgundy, the archenemy of France, in 1468, Warwick reached the end of his tether. He formed an alliance with George, Duke of Clarence, the king's younger brother. Together, they issued a remonstrance, listing alleged abuses by the Woodville family. They also warned Edward of the fate of such kings of Henry III, Edward II and Henry VI, where they estranged the great lords of their blood. They then assembled an army to remove evil counsellors and establish good government. At the Battle of Edgecott Moor in July 1469, this new force, backed by the powerful Nevilles and the king's brother, defeated the royal army. Edward was not present, but he quickly heard the news. What he did next is a credit to his growing political expediency. With poise, he handed himself in to Warwick and his brother Clarence. Warwick, the kingmaker, now had two kings captive but the capture of the second king was an anticlimax. He had arrested a compliant king. What does he do now? It would be egregious to execute him. With the king detained, law and order collapsed, with no commanding authority present. Public pressure was mounting on the rebels. The king had to be released. Warwick was able to negotiate his own pardon, along with Clarence. He did get his small victory with the execution of the Chancellor, Richard Woodville, and his son, the young husband of the pensioner. When the king was released, Warwick's influence continued to slip away. In 1469, Edward forbade the marriage of Warwick's daughter to his brother, Clarence. Edward was not prepared to allow the union of his treacherous brother with the most powerful family in England. They defied the king and married in secret in Calais. 
there was no going back. Warwick and Clarence met Louis XI, nicknamed the Universal Spider. He quickly engineered an alliance between the rebels and an old, potent enemy, Margaret. Warwick defected to the Lancastrians, performing one of the greatest betrayals in English history. The stoic Margaret insisted on Warwick kneeling before her in silence for 15 minutes. In February 1470, the rejuvenated Lancastrians landed in England. They outnumbered Edward, and without facing his enemy, he fled to Burgundy. The bewildered, downtrodden King Henry was released and restored to the throne on the 3rd of October 1470, just weeks after the Lancastrians reached the shores of England. It was becoming all too easy to depose a king. In order to return to power, Edward relied on the Duke of Burgundy, now his brother-in-law, but he was very reluctant to join a foreign war. It was only when Warwick declared war on Burgundy as part of a deal for support from Louis XI that the Duke threw his support behind Edward. Less than six months after his escape from England, Edward landed in Ravenspur, the same spot where Henry IV had landed to oust his cousin in 1399. As he travelled towards London, his support multiplied. Clarence, who had perhaps expected to be made king, was sidelined in favour of Henry. He rode to meet his brother to change sides once more. Edward, who had a reputation for mercy, upon seeing his slippery brother, hugged him and kissed him. He was forgiven. At the Battle of Barnet, Edward met the kingmaker, Warwick, in April 1471. According to a chronicler, under thick fog, Edward manly, vigorously and valiantly assaulted them in the midst, where he, with great violence, beat and bore down all before him, all that stood in his way. Warwick was killed. As the Lancastrians in London learned that Edward was en route, in a last-ditch effort for public support, they paraded Henry in the streets as their king. The old, debilitated man, dressed for mourning, was met with ridicule. The game was up. When Edward arrived, Henry embraced him and said, I know in your hands, my life is not in danger. Henry entered the tower once more. Edward IV was restored to the throne on the 11th of April, 1471. But there was another enemy to finally vanquish. Edward had benefited from poor Lancastrian timing. Margaret and her young son Edward's force had not been present at Barnet. They hadn't arrived in time. Edward had been able to split his enemy in two. Now at Tewkesbury in May 1471, they would meet for the final time. The Lancastrians were overwhelmed. Even after defeat, their slaughter continued. 
even entering the abbey. A priest held high the sacrament in front of the vicious Yorkists to shame them into stopping the massacre. The 17-year-old Edward, son of Henry VI, was captured. According to some sources, he met King Edward face to face and was struck with a gauntlet before being finished off by the king's brothers, Clarence and Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Margaret was later captured, but was allowed to live. She eventually returned to France, where she died in poverty. Despite an official pardon, Edward executed most of the Lancastrian leaders, but there was one left. On the 21st of May, 1471, the night that Edward arrived back to the adulated crowds of London, he ordered the murder of the old king, Henry. The man who'd been assured of his own safety. Now, his more fervent and threatening son was dead, there was no reason to keep the sorry king alive. Amid the chaotic Lancastrian scramble off English shores, 13-year-old Henry Tudor, a descendant of Edward III in the line of John of Gaunt, was now the senior Lancastrian claimant. He was smuggled to Brittany. Complete and total victory was Edward's. With Warwick dead, the 29-year-old king could truly rule and made attempts to seal a Yorkist future when he gathered 47 archbishops, bishops, dukes, earls, barons and knights to swear allegiance to Prince Edward, the true and undoubted heir to the realms of England and of France and the Lordship of Ireland. The seven-month-old was made Prince of Wales at Westminster Abbey in June 1471. Edward was keen to reconstruct England by purging the court of Lancastrian traces. He even tried to close Eton, a legacy of Henry VI. Edward's court was described as the most splendid in Christendom. He spent heavily on expensive status symbols to show off his power and wealth, in contrast to Henry V and VI. He acquired clothes, jewels and furnishings, and collected historical and literary manuscripts for his personal library. But his glittering and ritualised court didn't come cheap, and Parliament would voice familiar grievances. In 1475, Edward allied with the Burgundians to invade France. When he arrived, he found that not only were the Burgundians reluctant to engage, they even refused the English entry into their towns. The war was over before it had begun. The Treaty of Pekinese awarded Edward 75,000 crowns and a further 50,000 annual pension, and a further 50,000 annual pension. In return, Edward was made to renounce his claim to the French throne. Money set aside for war had been wasted. Parliament began to refuse the king money. Edward started to look elsewhere for income as his spending had begun to exceed it. He invested heavily in business ventures in the city of London, often failing to turn a profit. But there was another problem. Edward had had to sell land to gain support from the nobility following the fractious ends of the war. These nobles were now becoming too rich and powerful for the king to handle. His brother, Clarence, was threatening to become mightier than the king. Edward began to acquire land and would rule by virtue of being the richest man in England. This meant he had little need for Parliament to raise income. He didn't call them to session for five years. But while this tactic was effective for some, Clarence, who had inherited some estates of Warwick, 
through his marriage to his daughter, was out of the king's control. His other brother, Richard, had married Warwick's other daughter, which meant the king's brothers began to feud. Clarence was glib, shallow, and spoiled. He had betrayed his brother once, and no doubt had the capacity to do it again. He was described by Shakespeare as false, fleeting, perjured Clarence. But it wasn't in being duplicitous, but his position that gave him the advantage. He had knowledge that could bring down Edward, and perhaps the entire House of York with him. The secrecy and haste of Edward and Elizabeth Woodville's marriage had made it juicy scandal. An invalid marriage would disinherit Edward's seven children and put Clarence first in line. He covertly revived a rumour that Edward had married another woman before Elizabeth, thus making their union bigamous and illegal. Clarence also acted beyond his power. When his wife Isabella Neville died, he had her old servant arrested. He gave her a mock trial, accusing her of serving his wife a venomous drink. The servant was dragged through the streets of Warwick and hanged. The bullied jurors had been rocked by their conscience, but couldn't defy a duke. They asked the servant for forgiveness before she was executed. Clarence had undermined law and order in brutal fashion. In return, Edward refused a lucrative marriage for the newly widowed Clarence to the daughter of the Duke of Burgundy in 1477. Relations between the brothers were now irreparable. The final act of betrayal took place when three men were found guilty of predicting the king's death with the use of black magic. Sorcery was a depraved and evil act in medieval England. One of these men had been Clarence's servant. Clarence brazenly declared the man innocent. The king's brother had shown himself to be incorrigible and highly dangerous. He was arrested. In January 1478, Edward personally presided as judge and prosecutor, as his loyal supporters packed Parliament to condemn his own brother. Not a single person, bar the man himself, was brave enough to speak in defence of Clarence. He was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Edward dithered over the execution, but eventually proceeded. Legend has it, Clarence was drowned in a vat of Malmesbury wine, Edward's favourite drink. Isabella Neville's old servant was posthumously pardoned. Clarence's land was carved up to be ruled by Edward's trustees. He had eliminated his final threat. In 1482, Edward began to plan another conquest in France, but his health was failing. He had an extremely indulgent and hedonistic lifestyle. It had caught up with him. Philip de Comines said, Edward was young and more handsome than any man alive. I say was, because later he became very fat. He was accustomed to more luxuries and pleasures than anyone. According to Dominic Mancini, with food and drink he was most immoderate. It was his habit to take an emetic, a substance that causes vomiting. <laughs> in delight of gorging his stomach once more. While fishing, he fell fatally ill. He died on the 9th of April, 1483, most likely as a result of a heart attack or stroke. He was 40. He was buried at St. George's Chapel in Windsor. (laughs) 
While he lived long enough to make his brother Richard his son's protector, he wasn't afforded much time to make the necessary precautions, leaving the country dangling once more with a child king. Edward was a capable and charismatic leader who led from the front, politically and militarily. He had been the one leader strong enough to bring an end to the war. He was never defeated in the field of battle. Yet he was also a man of vanity, debauchery and extravagance. In his later years, his energy declined. He would respond to problems with a shrug of his shoulders. It meant that his greatest achievements of peace and stability were largely squandered, as the only king in active possession of his throne to fail in securing it for his own son. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Edward V, one of the princes in the tower. If you've got any questions or any comments, you can email in at thekingsandqueenspodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at kingsqueenspod, or you can go on Facebook, the Kings and Queens podcast. Uh, That's it from me. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.